Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you are listening to the 13th episode of the show. You're in for a treat this time around because I'll be speaking with someone whose work in political science is vast and deeply important. He's been mentioned on the show too many times to count and has undeniably been a big influence on my own political convictions, as well as the political convictions of many others. I'm truly honored and excited to have him on the show today. Here's my interview with Kevin Carson. Center's Carl Hess Chair in Social Theory. Formerly a mutualist and individualist anarchist, he now identifies as an anarchist without adjectives. In addition to classical individualists, he's influenced heavily by the theorists of post-capitalism and commons-based peer production, Eleanor Ostrom's natural resource governance theory, and autonomous Marxism. His written work includes studies in political economy, organization theory, a libertarian perspective, the homebrew industrial revolution, a low overhead manifesto, and the desktop regulatory state, all of which are freely available to read on his website, kevinacarson.org. Carson has also written for such print publications as The Freeman, Ideas on Liberty, and a variety of internet-based journals and blogs, including Just Things, The Art of the Possible, the P2P Foundation, and his own Mutualist blog. Without further ado, Kevin Carson, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. How are you doing today? Doing good. Just uh, another day. How about you? Not bad. Just uh, enjoying my day off. Have you uh, picked any tasty veggies from the garden recently? Well, it's kind of uh, died down, unfortunately, the, the, other than just a few herbs I've got growing around the front porch. The last thing I really harvested was Jerusalem artichokes. Okay, tasty. Well, uh, let's jump into this thing. What brought you to anarchism, and why do you continue to study and develop anarchist theory? Well, uh, my path to anarchism was... Uh, fairly gradual starting in the late 90s i uh, was involved in a prolonged course of study on decentralist economics and politics what really kicked it off for me was reading kirkpatrick sales book human scale which is a pretty good sized tome divided up into a lot of different subject oriented chapters covering most aspects of social life and 
just the feasibility of decentralized organization and its possibilities and its efficiency compared to the existing system. And I did a lot of exploring, just following all the uh, recommended reading and footnotes in that and seeing where they would take me. And that whole line of inquiry led me gradually to perceive myself as an anarchist. And I've, I've been developing various aspects of that ever since. Sure. What allows you to keep going, though? You produce so much work. How are you able to do that? Well, just the unifying theme of the toxic or inefficiency costs of authority and hierarchy, uh, how they create perverse incentives, distort information flow, and generally cause irrationality is a kind of a Rosetta Stone for exploring a whole lot of different areas, and mm -hmm. I never run out of material. Yeah, for sure. You used to call yourself a mutualist. Now you consider yourself an anarchist, as we uh, an anarchist without adjectives, as we said in the introduction. Is it fair to say this this transition grew out of becoming convinced of the efficacy of other voluntary economic arrangements outside of the cash nexus? Well, even when uh, I called myself a market anarchist or an individualist, you know, a decade or more ago, I was really uncomfortable in general with the idea of monolithic templates for organizing future society, whether it was, you know, something like the World Socialist Movement's capital S socialism that had, you know, was a, a pretty good case study of the pitfalls of, of uh, bike shedism, uh, mm -hmm. wanting to design every last aspect of society down to the particular details and having this... Uh, pre-planned scenario of instituting capital S socialism according to the one true model worldwide. Right. And I had a similar reaction to Rothbard's idea of a libertarian law code that would be universally adopted throughout society. It just strikes me as incredibly unlikely and somewhat juvenile to envision any one ideological template like that becoming the basis for a uh, an entire society's organization. I always envisioned the transition being something brought about by all the various diverse seeds growing under the concrete right now or uh, within the interstices of the system, just growing, expanding, and coalescing together into an emergent phenomenon. And I doubted that they would be guided by any single ideology so much as just the necessities of the moment trying to survive and navigate the transition. And over time, I guess my uh, reservations about the market anarchist label just built up. For one thing, the, the very fact of the term itself, market anarchist, suggests markets as uh, some kind of a you know, unitary organizational model in the same way that syndicalism or uh, libertarian communism does. And... Um, you know, there, there are market anarchists that will stipulate or tip their hats to the fact that uh, non-cash nexus uh, forms of interaction are totally cool as long as there's no coercion involved. So it incor uh, market anarchist society would incorporate gift economies and direct production for use uh, and that, that kind of thing outside the cash nexus. But it's hard to get around the fact that 
the term market itself carries a lot of uh, historical connotations and is grounded in a society based on market exchange. And that kind of society is something that's only a few hundred years old and was imposed by the state in all the ways that David Graeber described in debt. And I just finally uh, decided that was some baggage I needed to get rid of. So, yeah, so the, the idea is let a thousand flowers bloom, let every every possible stigmergic voluntary organization come about in its own way. And to, to fetishize one of those organizations as a one-size-fits-all is not only unlikely, but, but foolish to, to sort of hone in on. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, you know, a very ad hoc thing. It's probably going to vary a lot from region to region. I, I basically agree with uh, Graeber's idea that you know, whatever form the future society takes, there are some central aspects of capitalism that are very unlikely to be accepted, like large-scale absentee landlordism. It'll probably be pretty hard to get people working for wage labor in a society where large-scale absentee property is no longer respected and there are all kinds of alternatives. But I can't imagine markets not being part of the uh, eclectic mix along with a lot of other things. You know, like Graeber, I basically go along with uh, whatever basket of expedience people in any area work out among themselves as long as there's nobody with an army at their back imposing Mm -hmm. anything like you know, like recognition of uh, landlord property or something like that, or trying to enforce capitalist property rights. How does your understanding of anarchism without adjectives differ from past anarchists who have helped to develop the theory? Uh, Well, it's been a while since I read anything on the history of the theory. I think I, I wrote a C4SS study on it three or four years ago, maybe. But the impression I have now, just based on my vague recollection, is that it was more or less a tactical arrangement between the various anarchist tendencies, given common insurrectionary assumptions, uh, that they would agree to to fight capitalism and and do whatever is necessary to destroy capitalism and the state and, and leave it up to individual communities to work out among themselves whatever economic arrangements they wanted to afterwards. And my emphasis generally is just more uh, on interstitial models of transition and the whole variety of counter-institutions that exist right now and the fact that they coexist and commingle with each other right now and that whatever system develops will be emergent and reflect a lot of different inputs. Does your understanding of mutualism differ from Sean Wilbur's, and if so, how? Well, Sean's uh, approach is is primarily that of a historian and a philologist. He digs out the historical origins of the the concept and original usage of the words and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, He does a lot of really in-depth textual analysis of Proudhon and other thinkers in that whole Proudhonian, Owenite, English mutualist uh, milieu. And 
when I called myself an individualist, it was much more of a schematic tool of analysis of uh, the capitalist system, rather. To the extent that I had any one influence, it probably would have been Benjamin Tucker and the Boston anarchists more than anybody else. And the whole idea of the uh, four monopolies, the artificial property rights and artificial scarcities by which the state intervenes in the market and enables the extraction of economic rents by property holders. And my vision was pretty much, uh, you know, an idée fixe centered on eliminating those monopolies and subjecting capital and land to the same competitive mechanism that labor's subject to and, uh, and destroying profit, rent, and interest. And, you know, to some extent, uh, I was also influenced uh, by people like Clarence Swartz's book, What is Mutualism?, envisioning a post-capitalist future centered on cooperatives or worker self-management and uh, other cooperative alternatives along the same lines. How do you feel about Benjamin Tucker's take that in a free society, if perfect competition did not in fact abolish profit, rent, and interest, then we must consider them legitimate? Uh... Well, I don't know if perfect competition alone would do it, given the legacy distribution of property. I I think it would have to be coupled with some things like worker takeover of large-scale enterprises. And, and Tucker himself envisioned uh, tenants just universally uh, expropriating landlords. But, I mean, so in a, in a society where... Um, you know, firms were universally owned by workers as the residual claimant, and land was uniformly owned by the tenants, and market relations persisted. I suppose you could call whatever rate of profit persisted after that, which I suspect would be very minor, as a tolerable evil, but I also have no problem in principle with anarchist tendencies that would. Uh, just abolish those things under the basic operating rules of the economy either. Do you think individualists and mutualists are somewhat unfairly left out of the modern anarchist conversation? Uh, Not really. I uh, probably don't have the most God's eye view of what the total, you know, meta, uh, meta debate is among various anarchist tendencies, but I suspect that they're probably represented in proportion to their number uh, within the overall movement. I often see mutualists and individualists sort of begrudgingly included within the broader anarchist conversation. You know, like we might be mentioned as a side note or something, but like you said, I mean, that may just be because there aren't a whole lot of us out there. I mean, the uh, individualists uh, are something that were originally discussed in Ian McKay's anarchist FAQ back in the 90s when it was a much smaller tendency, and I think they've got uh, correspondingly more attention right now. Since you no longer identify as a market anarchist, what areas do you think market anarchists need to focus more on, and what are the opportunities and threats to the general market anarchist project from, from your perspective? Well, it's hard for me to say what they should focus on because it would be hard for them to shift focus to the things they need to focus more on, in my opinion, without ceasing to be defined by the market. 
if they downplayed the role of market exchange to the place I think it deserves, uh, it wouldn't really even be accurate to call it market anarchism anymore. I think uh, if there's any danger uh, they need to confront, just from what I've seen, it's the popularity of, of mutualist and market anarchist as labels, just from what I've seen on, on social media in the last couple of years. There are an awful lot of people I see that have that, uh, that label in their Twitter bio and have the little uh, orange and black flag or, or uh, whatever, and I think it's really getting watered down and incorporating uh, people with right-leaning tendencies. So you're saying market anarchists should sort of be mindful of combating a uh, right-wing creep? Yeah, to uh, make sure it, it you know keeps its, its primarily anti-capitalist orientation because even before, you know, for want of any other better uh, term, the Tuckerite revival of the last couple of decades, there were a lot of more or less ANCAP people who used the term individualist anarchist and were trying to uh, celebrate aspects of Tucker, you know, in the same way that they celebrate Lysander Spooner as a precursor while stripping him of all his socialistic mm -hmm. aspects. And I think that that still has some pull, some 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 kind of uh, rightward uh, pull that really needs to be resisted. You've recently started to read and develop ideas surrounding libertarian municipalism. I was wondering if you could explain what libertarian municipalism is and how did you become interested in it? Well, uh, it's, for me, it's not really so much libertarian municipalism. Uh, uh, libertarian municipalism, as far as I know, is primarily associated with uh, Murray Bookchin, and it's promoted to some extent uh, by people who support the Rojava commune and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm more interested in the new municipalist movements that grew out of the post-M15 movement in Spain and related movements that arose independently in the United States, like in Jackson, Mississippi, and so forth, and all the various offshoots of all of those movements that have sprung up over Europe and North America and, and elsewhere around the world. I became interested in it, I guess, uh, to some extent, it grew out of my interest in the uh, Occupy movement and all the other horizontalist movements in 2011. And there are also uh, websites I've followed for some time, like Shareable and, and other news aggregators on the left that focus on the commons. My study on Ostrom probably drew my attention to that as well. Other than that, it's just something that I've gradually become more interested in over time. And in early 2000, it was, I can't remember if it was, uh, okay, it was published in early 2018, so I would have done the research in 2017. I did a C4SS study on the new municipalist movements in Europe and places like Jackson and North North America, and I've been really following it closely ever since. That was part of what inspired me to start working on my current book, Exodus. So it's been one of my central focuses, uh, just keeping up with news related to uh, municipalist movements in Spain and elsewhere and stuff related to commons-based local economies. 
Okay, and do you view new municipalist movements as a stepping stone to realizing anarchism, or do you see it as a desirable end goal in and of itself? Uh, to some extent, a little of both, because I think of it as more of a you know a lowercase label than uh, a capital letterism. I see all of the different organizational nuts and bolts that are being developed in uh, local municipal movements and uh, commons-based economies is the kind of thing that post-capitalist transition is going to be centered on. And I think the actual municipalist political movements are a political stick that can be wielded by those local counter-economic coalitions. So I definitely see them as you know a whole cluster of phenomena that are all moving in the same direction and can be taken pretty far in that direction. Even the uh, movements in municipal government, to the extent that they're uh, amenable to being pushed towards something like the, the partner state, model uh, where the state becomes less state-like, I think, are compatible with uh, genuine anarchism uh, in in an evolutionary or gradualist sense. To what extent are markets compatible with municipalism, and how might these two ways of cooperating coexist? Uh, Well, I'm not sure uh, how much I would have to say about that in detail, other than I just generally see markets as probably being part of the mix in both places. You know, I expect there will be a lot of economic activity taking place completely outside the cash nexus, with, with land being permanently removed from the market via community land trusts and with there being a lot of direct production for use in the commons and that sort of thing. But there will probably be some market exchange of surpluses between micro-villages or, or uh, living units uh, or, or multifamily compounds. There will probably be some pricing of basic resource inputs by the natural resource commons governing bodies that process them, if nothing else. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I would I would expect markets would probably be a, a minority of, of total, would govern a minority of uh, total distribution, but I think they'll, you know, still play some role in coordination in most areas. Is it fair to say that you see municipalist arrangements as being more capable of handling things that markets aren't able to? Mm, that, it's hard, it's hard for me to, to say. Uh, I, th- I think in closing, you know, some forms of activity and primary uh, associations or, or uh, living or arrangements and engaging in direct production for use would certainly be more efficient than monetizing everything in the cash nexus. I mean, if even today, a huge amount of social and productive activity takes place outside the cash nexus within the household. And you imagine uh, how perverse and inefficient it would be if uh, people within a family all paid each other for their activities keeping the household (laughs) running. And I think a lot of uh, cash nexus activity that takes place right now is the moral equivalent of that. I've got two quotes from different anarchists in regards to democracy. I'll say each of them one at a time and allow you to respond. Here's the first one. Anarchism is democracy taken seriously. Yeah, I uh, agree with that uh, pretty much. I uh, 
strongly sympathize with the view that people should have as much agency as possible in the sense of having a say over the things that influence their lives uh, and the decisions that affect them. The closer we get to the individual having consent as an individual, uh, the closer we approximate democracy. I don't see democracy so much as being majoritarianism as it is agency or, or consent. When you have cases where it's necessary for everybody in a given organization or social unit to agree on something like, you know, the people in a house deciding what to set the thermostat on or, or whatever, your only real choice is the rule of the majority or some sort of consensus. It's at least the least unjust thing to do, but to the extent that you can disaggregate things and obtain everybody's consent, the better, you know, the more democratic it is. Okay, and here's the other quote. If monarchy is the hammer which crushes the people, democracy is the axe which divides it. The one and the other equally conclude in the death of liberty. Yeah, I've uh, I've seen that kind of uh, statement quite a bit in the past. You know, for one thing, I, I think it's uh, faulty in that, in that it pretends something like democracy has ever existed in any real sense. It's a lot like I say it used by a lot of the same people who say democracy is two wolves and a, a sheep voting over what they have for dinner, or the people that quote that right-wing guy from the 18th century that that said democracy will only survive until the public realizes they can vote themselves largesse out of the public treasury, and <laughs> it uh, they all strike me as having a you know a very anti-majoritarian sentiment and, and viewing the majority as just being a big unwashed mass of people that are oppressing uh, the elite or uh, unique individuals or the the thrifty and industrious or whatever. It's, it just got carries a lot of ANCAP baggage for me, and I don't sympathize with it at all. I think generally democracy is good to the extent that agreement is necessary on anything and people engaged in activities are the best judges of how to do it. That would apply to uh, the governance of a direct democracy at the neighborhood level running its utilities and uh, that sort of thing, or to workplace democracy and and managing an enterprise and so on. So, yeah. Going back to municipalism a little bit, do you have any concerns about municipalist arrangements eventually devolving into state-like entities? Really not a whole lot, because uh, municipalism at the local level is pretty much a whole ecology of institutions uh, that aren't owned by the state. Land trusts, uh, platform cooperatives of various kinds, tool libraries, community workshops, uh, neighborhood gardens, and and all that kind of thing. And the uh, local government is a relatively minor part of it. And the municipal government under municipalist movements is probably the least likely to 
to be uh, in danger of a uh, major power grab of any level of government. If anything, I would expect uh, municipal government to be easier to push in the direction of a partner state model where it just serves as a sort of uh, administrative or support platform on behalf of the stakeholders in the various cooperatives and commons rather than actually the being the primary director of the whole thing. Okay, and uh, you mentioned it earlier a little bit, but what are your thoughts on Murray Bookchin's version of libertarian municipalism? Well, to the extent that I've read him, um, I read a collection of his essays a few years ago, a posthumous collection. I think I've got it sitting around here. I don't remember what the title of it was, but his whole version of municipalism strikes me as too monolithic, the idea of the entire municipal ecology of economic institutions all being subject to the municipal and neighborhood assemblies. I would imagine, uh, you know, in the in the real world, the kind of stuff that grows out of the new municipalist movements and the various forms of social commons being organized as parts of them would be much more diversified or gothic in the, the sense of the the range of organizational ties between them or the the different forms of coordination and overlapping jurisdictions. Right. And uh, another thing you mentioned earlier was the Rajavan Revolution. To a large extent, Murray Bookchin inspired their form of organization, democratic confederalism. How do do you feel about the way it's manifested in that area? Well, I I, uh, don't think I've ever read about uh, Rojava in uh, any great depth. I've just followed the news about them and general descriptions on various left-wing news sites. Uh, But from what I know of them, my general view is favorable. I think the world has really lost something important when Trump gave Turkey the okay to to move in and and, uh, crush them. Do you think the United States at this point, since they basically created ISIS and since Rojava is the one of the main recipients of their terror, do you think that the United States owes them protection? Well, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to that uh, view, although I, I just really hesitate to come out and say the United States should do anything because I figure anything the United States does in foreign affairs will wind up in some way serving evil interests ultimately, but my general approach is that when uh, there's a way for the state to act in a way that mitigates harm already caused by the state, I'm not in principle opposed to it. Whether that applies practically in this case, uh, it's not something I'd take a a dogmatic stance on, but I, I definitely think Trump did a bad thing in the way he conducted the pullout in, in uh, greenlighting Erdogan. Right. And they really didn't pull out. They just moved to protecting oil, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically it. Uh, it, just, it just made it clear what his priorities are. And I, I certainly don't. I'm not going to say, uh, you know, yay, America, jump in and uh, protect the Kurds, because generally when the United States does anything in the name of humanitarianism, there's some really dirty shit going on in the background that will come out later. Mm-hmm. But I have I have no sympathy at all for the, the tanky and uh, dirtbag left types that are all, you know, just basically running political interference for uh, 
Assad and for China and uh, for whatever other authoritarian regime that happens to be resisting the United States in the name of anti-imperialism or, or claiming that any critic of, uh, of Assad or whoever is just uh, a shill for the CIA and, you know, all the stuff about the, the white helmets being terrorists and uh, everyone resisting a, Assad being uh, a Daesh terrorist and, and that, that sort of thing. Uh, I think they're really just uh, useful idiots. I, I interviewed uh, Dr. Hijar not that long ago, who is a, a Kurdish native, and he was explaining me to me some very interesting ecological aspects to their form of organizing. And this kind of brings me into my next question a little bit. How can climate change be combated in our current political realities? Well, there are, uh, I guess, two main directions uh, that co combating climate change uh, would go in. One of them is just technological or, e or economic trends. Uh, the fact that photovoltaic power and other renewable alternatives are continuing to become so cheap uh, relative to fossil fuels and all the things that are going on around the world despite Trump's best efforts, local governments adopting carbon-free initiatives and all of that sort of thing. I think just the effect of, of economic incentives of, of those sort will uh, result in a gradual decarbonization regardless of what happens with the, uh, the Paris Accords. And the other major uh, direction is all the stuff that's being done in, in terms of local resistance on the ground, people uh, directly, physically obstructing the construction of of pipelines, the people engaged in legal or bureaucratic uh, obstruction, challenging them in the uh, EPA and Corps of Engineers review processes or suing them uh, to slow down the process of construction, doing things like sabotage that raise the level of risk and the price of insurance, and things like the divestment movement that are hurting construction movement. Every, every single thing that's done along those lines has, adds to the cumulative effect that makes pipeline investment or fossil fuel drilling just slightly less attractive or slightly more risky as an investment or incrementally raises the cost and lowers the rate of profit on it. And I think the cumulative effect of all these things will speed up carbon transition. As it is right now, you know, getting back to the material or economic side of it, there seems to be more and more information coming out that the fracking boom will peter out in the 20s, uh, probably go bust. And I think uh, between that and a lot of the older electrical generating capacity reaching uh, generational uh, replacement age at the same time solar is becoming cheaper, I think we're going to see a huge part of the economy decarbonized by 2030 just from natural processes. Okay, and uh, let's move on to some listener and Patreon questions, if you don't mind. What's the value of fiction? and its role in promoting or developing the ideas and values of anarchism? And have you ever considered writing fiction to illustrate some of your own ideas? Well, I've read a lot of works of fiction that I can say had a big effect on me and influenced the direction of my thought. And I would 
assume it's had a similar effect on a lot of other people. And I've just seen in the public discussion of it, the fact that it seems to have some general social impact on shaping perceptions, at least to some degree, of what's possible. Uh, one of the things I read recently that was a major influence on me was Cory Doctorow's Walk Away. And I've also you know, read a few other things like Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time. And I'm currently reading New York 2140 by Kim Stanley, Stanley Robinson. I've read his Mars trilogy, and they all do a really great job in exploring both the uh, hypothetical transition scenarios and just the liberatory possibilities for organizing society around decentralized technologies and more libertarian forms of social coordination. So, so does that mean we should eventually expect something from you in the form of fiction? Oh, no, definitely not. I, I don't have whatever gift it takes to write fiction, uh, just, you know, in terms of, of writing believable dialogue or, or characters who weren't wooden caricatures or uh, or developing any kind of plot that would be of, of interest to, to someone. My Even in reading it, my uh, primary interest is in just discerning what the world-building assumptions and, and scenarios were of the author rather than in the conventional literary aspects of it. Uh, I'm good at coming up with ideas for someone else to write fiction about, you know, alternative history scenarios and and that sort of thing, but that's uh, about as far as it goes. You mentioned Kim Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, This next question is about the Mars Trilogy. Given the choice between living in the setting of Red Mars, where things were much more sparse, anarchic, sublime, and wildly free and full of potential, or Blue Mars, where things are far more classically utopian, mutualist, lush, and peaceful, which would you choose to live in? Well, I'd have to say that, you know, Red Mars actually struck me as as, uh, pretty authoritarian uh, because you had the uh, underground and the demi-monde that were very libertarian and uh, prefigurative, but they wound up actually being suppressed in a bloody counter-revolution by Unoma and the the TNCs. And on the other hand, the, the world that exists in Blue Mars is a direct outgrowth of that whole federation of, of communes in the underground and uh, from Red Mars. So on the whole, I'd say I prefer Blue Mars because it's the uh, actual fruit that that uh, grew out of the high potential society and in, in Red Mars, and there are a lot of attractive things uh, about it, uh, just uh, in terms of the possibilities for living, the non-coercive, uh, non-toxic social atmosphere, the way people grow up without the emotional scars and and, uh, constraints that uh, people do in our society that I find very attractive. Even even the relatively ugly side of it, like Jackie's machinations and the planetary government seem to have a very limited scope in, in, in terms of her actual reach. So on the whole, I like Blue Mars the best. Is artificial intelligence good or bad for human liberation? That's probably not a good question for me because I don't have the relevant tech knowledge and 
I don't know that I see AI in itself as driving things that much in one way or the other. I think a lot of it depends just on what social framework it's incorporated into. And beyond that, somebody would probably, somebody else would be a lot more qualified than I am to answer. And uh, this next question is uh, also a Patreon and listener question, uh, one that I've asked almost every guest. How would one get a cappuccino in your imagined political utopia? I imagine it would be pretty easy. You know, we'd still have uh, communities of uh, thousands or tens of thousands of, of people all over the place. In any community you wanted to go, to, you, know, you lived in, you could probably just walk downtown to a pavilion full of uh, food carts where somebody had cappuccino machines set up or go into a, a coffee shop or, or anywhere else just like today, although it would probably be worker-owned and managed. But uh, other than that, probably not much different. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, what do you think of the wave of protests going on around the world right now? I'm really happy about it. I think even given the horrible thing that happened in Bolivia, it's still outweighed on net by the scale of the public uprisings sweeping Latin America, it looks like we're probably entering another wave of large-scale protests and horizontal movements on the same scale as 2011. I found it really heartening. I, I hope good things come from it. If there were a cocktail named after you, what would the ingredients be? That's another one that's hard to answer because I'm not really a, a cocktail person. I usually <laughs> either drink beer or just uh, on the rare occasions I drink hard liquor. I just drink it uh, straight without messing it up with anything else. But I like uh, bourbon and I like IPAs. So okay, so just maybe just, uh, just maybe a meat. boiler maker made from an IPA with a, a shot of Booker's uh, dropped into it and a few drops of uh, bergamot oil or something. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that would actually taste, but it's all things I like. <laughs> That's great. I'd give it a shot. Okay, towards the end of these interviews, I'd like to do a lightning round where I list a series of people or ideas and have my guests respond to each item in one minute or less. Are you down? Okay. Marx. Well, I'm, I'm not a Marxist, obviously. I don't believe in his philosophy of historical materialism. I think if you take it to a self-parody level, it's just vulgar Marxism. But given capitalism as a system with a beginning and end, I think his dialectical analysis of its internal functioning is very useful. And a lot of his followers, like the autonomists, I find very useful as well. Mises. I'm generally hostile towards him, uh, based to a large extent on my interaction with Austrian types online. I think a lot of his historical analysis is incredibly vulgar and right-wing. There, there are some aspects of his a prioriism I find useful, although I have trouble admitting it. Electoral politics. I see uh, electoral politics as useful as a sideline, but I'm really sympathetic to the idea of voting for the lesser evil because I see it as just a way to, as something to throw into the breach and stave off the worst of the fascist onslaught and, and buy time for the stuff that's really important, like the institutions we're building on the ground. I don't, I don't see electoral politics as a way to get the best possible people in to, as, you know, the main way to implement your agenda. 
I have much more limited view of what it's for, so I don't get that upset at the idea of compromising or choosing a lesser evil. Insurrection. I see insurrection largely as irrelevant given the possibilities of interstitial development and and building the commons right now. There may be violence involved in the transition period. There may be some violent rupture, but if so, it'll just be uh, something that's probably initiated by the state, and uh, the outcome will just be to ratify all the changes that have been going on interstitially on the ground for the previous couple of generations. Exodus. Well, Exodus is... uh, the title of the book I'm working on right now, and it's uh, what I see as the primary approach to post-capitalist transition, an exodus into the commons and into a commons-based counter-economy, a commons-based post-capitalist economy developing within the interstices of, of this one and coalescing into a parallel system that will eventually supplant it. The Abolition of Work. Uh, I'm generally uh, sympathetic to it. I don't like the direction that left accelerationist types have taken it in, uh, and I don't see it as something that'll be accomplished, uh, you know, on a monolithic level by any kind of technological engineering, but I see it as a gradual process of withdrawal from the cash nexus and production gradually becoming more integrated into social activity and play. Okay. You obviously have a a heavy emphasis on the building of counter-institutions as a way to build a new world within the shell of the old. What are some of the most promising counter-institutions you see springing up nowadays that promote a world beyond capitalism and the state? Well, you know, largely, you know, the kinds of local institutions associated with the municipalist movements we discussed earlier, uh, community land trusts, uh, fab labs, uh, neighborhood workshops, community gardens, uh, squats, platform cooperatives, tool libraries, free muni wireless, pretty much anything that takes the means of, of meeting some necessity of life outside of the cash nexus and places it under the direct control of the people who depend on it. And what do you think folks should be doing to help further and bring about a free society? Uh, it's really hard to advise anyone else because, you know, there are so many people that aren't really in a position to do much more than just what's required to live day to day. I'm lucky I found a place to, to live that's a couple acres of land and, a, and an old used trailer for only 30000 bucks. So I, I live off self-employment income and grow a huge amount of my own food and I can live indefinitely if my truck breaks down and I I can't drive into town. So I I just say uh, to anybody, start wherever you are. Find out what is available in your community in terms of counter-economic institutions. Get together with your neighbors whenever you can. If you have any space at all, grow as much food as you can. Share it with your neighbors. Uh, Share other stuff with your neighbors as as much as you can so you can get by without uh, buying stuff. 
just, you know, do what you have to do to, to survive. And if, if you're poor and you've got to do it to survive, uh, go ahead and shop at Walmart, but do whatever you can on the side to reduce your need for outside money and to get things uh, without depending on cash purchases and who that, you know, what that means in practical terms varies a lot from one person's situation to the next. Uh, do business with cooperatives as, as much as you can. If there's stuff like repair cafes or uh, tool lending libraries around where you live, make friends with the people there and use them as much as you can. Uh, just give your, your support and your backing to people that are trying to build a different kind of system whatever whenever you see them and whenever there's something uh, you can do to help what would be your advice to someone who wants to become as proficient as you have been in political science and writing mm, i'm not sure how helpful my advice would be because i stumbled into so much of it and so much of it is just so specific uh, to my history i discovered the internet i think it was in mid 2000 and started making contact with different groups online that I had some political affinity with. Uh, I got my first pamphlet, Iron Fist, published by Red Lion Press. That was Larry Gambone's uh, publishing outfit. And I joined a whole lot of different discussion groups on, on uh, Yahoo groups and in the comment threads at various political websites. And so I had made contact, uh, had uh, acquainted myself with a whole range of different people involved in different political movements uh, that I was constantly engaged in political debate with. Uh, and that's the background I was in when I started writing Mutualist Political Economy. During the whole process of writing it, and especially writing the first section, the economic chapters on value theory, I was constantly arguing with people on both Austrian economics email lists and in the com comment sections at the Mises Institute and with uh, libertarian communists and state socialists in their various uh, email lists and websites as well. And just the state of the internet in the early knots, there were a lot of leading figures in political movements and academic departments in those various schools of thought that were participating in those email lists that I got to cut my teeth arguing against and attract the attention of third parties. So by the time I published Mutual's Political Economy, I had sort of created my own potential readership just from participating in those communities and creating the potential for viral marketing uh, among the communities I was already in. Then in uh, 2007, my friend Sheldon Richmond offered me my first opportunity for a paid article submission in The Freeman. I wrote several articles uh, for them, and it was the previous year, 2006, that Roderick Long offered me a uh, the opportunity to participate in a symposium issue of Journal of Libertarian Studies on, on my book, and that, that drew some attention. So my advice would be uh, get active in the communities that you expect will be your primary audience. Spend a lot of time discussing your ideas there, uh, discussing the, the kind of ideas you want to write about so that when you do attempt to publish stuff, you've uh, already got 
a community of readers in place that you can promote it to and just take advantage of, of whatever uh, contacts you make in that process to get your ideas out in new venues. But for me, it was largely, uh, you know, fortuitous or ad hoc process. It's it's not the kind of thing where you just out of the cold decide I'm going to write a book on this, and then when you get done writing it, you start thinking about who you're going to market it to. You've got to be someone who's already active in a community that you're writing the book for. Other than your own work, what resources do you recommend folks check out in order to learn more about your political interests? Well, the some of the major uh, places I go right now just to keep up with information on the stuff I'm writing about would be LabGov, which is a, a sort of municipalist academic site run by Sheila Foster and Christian Iannone that have a, a background studying the municipalist movements in, in Europe and North America. And another one is Shareable that's run by Neil Grenflow that covers things related to the commons and the sharing economy. Okay, and where should folks go to check out your work and support you and your efforts? Well, you already mentioned my uh, website, kevinacarson.org. I write for c4ss.org. When you go to their site, you can uh, just go to the tag for my byline if you want to look at my past work. Uh, other than that, I have a uh, Patreon site, patreon.com slash Kevin Carson for anyone that wants to support what I'm doing. And my current writing project is called Exodus, General Idea of the Revolution in the 21st Century. And that's uh, the current manuscripts to date are hosted at a uh, WordPress blog called exodus875.wordpress.com. Okay, Kevin Carson. Well, I really, really appreciate your time today. I'm completely flattered that, that you would come on the show. I uh, can't thank you enough for being here. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me, and it's been fun. Of course. All right, Kevin. Well, um, yeah, thanks again, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Cool. Take care. <laughs> All right, you too. Goodbye. folks. I hope everyone enjoyed my interview with Kevin Carson. In many ways, this episode was peer-produced, so big thanks to everyone who contributed their thoughts. If you enjoy the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Media. If you can't contribute financially, simply liking and sharing this episode will go a long way. We appreciate all your support. And if you want to view our full catalog, go to nonserviam.media. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.